you know, history is full of ironies. Uh, one, probably you may have heard, uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize, most of us know that that's an award given to a person who has uh, sought, in great measure, the peace of the world. Um, he, fu- he started this, this award, and he funded this award, and uh, he funded it from the resources of his own invention. And, of course, his invention was dynamite, uh, used pretty much in most bomb-making and war-type activities. So out of that came this ironic award for peace. But there's other sad ironies in terms of uh, Adolf Hitler, who sought to eradicate the Jews from Europe, who had Jewish ancestry. Or Stalin, the dictator of Russia, thought to, sought to squash religion. It studied for years in a seminary, seeking to be a priest at one point. There's many ironies in life, but none so much like the one before us today, that out of a cross, just, just surrounded with mockery, would come hope and salvation. It, it, it's, you, you heard Luke read. The crucifixion is given precious little room in here. Just a few words. The whole thing is set in the context of mockery. This, this, out of this mockery of human rebellion against God comes God's greatest gift of salvation to us. It, it should really take our breath away. So shocking is it. Let's just, I, what I want to do is something very simple today. I want to just look at the mockery that we really understand the nature of human rebellion. And then I want to look at the crucifixion because we've sanitized it in our culture. And then I want to draw some, some points to press on you. And, and I want these to press deep on you. You know, Jonathan Edwards was probably one of the greatest theologians that at least American soil has produced back in the 18th century. And here's what he wrote about the intention of a sermon. Let me just remind you. He says, The main benefit obtained by preaching is by an impression made upon the mind at that time and not by an effect that arises afterwards, by a remembrance of what was delivered. He says, And though a later remembering of what was heard in a sermon is often profitable, yet for the most part that remembrance is from an impression of words made on the heart at the time. And the memory profits as it renews and increases that impression. The business of preaching is not only to give information. The business of preaching is to make such knowledge live. So that's my hope today that it wouldn't just be informing you of something maybe you know a little bit about, but that the knowledge would live in you, that it would press down upon you. So let's just look at the mockery just for a minute. You know, Jesus was mocked by everyone, right? It starts out with the guards. So the guards are working for Pilate. Pilate has had him scourged and condemned. He's turned over to these guards. These guards probably were not legionnaires of Italian descent. They were probably kind of conscripted from the land, probably Syrian. The Romans would do that. They would take men from the land that knew the language and knew the terrain. These Syrians probably hated the Jews, which kind of explains why they took such relish in mocking Jesus. And you see what they do to Jesus. 
They, they, they rip his clothes off. Now, he had been scourged, remember? So those lashes of leather with bone and metal in them, lacerating the skin, would have opened up, would have mingled with the clothing. clothing that was ripped off, and they put a red robe on him, probably a soldier's robe. And, and it's making a mockery, really, of Jesus' claim to be king. They're dressing him up for sport. And then they, they, they twist this, this crown. It, it, we don't know what, what plant it was, but it was probably a branch with thorns that they twist and they put on his head. It, it's a parody, if you will, of the crown that Caesar would have worn. You, you see pictures of it. It's a crown really made up with coins that kind of radiate. Kind of his divine, his divine presence is radiated. They're, they're mocking Jesus. In his kingship, they put a staff, or it's really a, a reed, it's like bamboo, they would put in his right hand, because all leaders, of course, rule and lead with a staff. And then, of course, just to amp it up a little bit, they begin to worship him, falsely, of course. Now, you remember in chapter 2 in Matthew that the wise men came, and they actually did worship at his birth, but at his death, they're not going to worship him. They're mocking him, hail, hail Jesus, king of the Jews. Kind of, again, a parody off of Hail Caesar, Ave Caesar, that's what they would say. But then when this got tiring, they then began to spit on him. And they take that reed and, and beat him about the head. And the verb means repeatedly beating him. And then, of course, they strip the robe off him and when they were finished with him. And I think Matthew's trying to show us here that that the Jews were not simply the only ones. This is not an anti-Semitic piece. The Gentiles were just as complicit. But just think about the mockery, how, we, how we're able to do that to another human being, that kind of behavior. But it's not just them, it's the passerbys. It's, it's those people. You know, Once the crucifixion began occurring, you see the people walking along the street. They're shouting out their own insults to Jesus. Why? What stake do they have with Jesus? You know, what the Romans would do was they would crucify a victim by a busy street so that everybody would see what was happening. It was a form of deterrence. If you were to see an actual crucifixion, then you would be mindful to not commit the same crime that you see being crucified. And so they're passing by and they're hurling insults and they're wagging their heads. They're deriding him. They're challenging him. Hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down off the cross? They're kind of poking fun at him. Now, neither the soldiers before them or these passerbys, they didn't realize they were actually fulfilling what God said would happen. Let me remind you, back in Isaiah 50, God is speaking. He's going to send a suffering servant. God will send a rescuer. But the rescuer won't come on a white horse in power. He's going to come as a servant, and he's going to suffer for that which you should be suffering under. And so we read in Isaiah 50, where he says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking or spitting. So here the soldiers are actually doing what God had said would be done. Or these men and women passing by hurling insults? That was prophesied in Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is a psalm written by David. And it's a psalm that David writes when he's being persecuted for his loyalty to God. And he says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Wagging your heads was kind of a, was an expression of just derision and, and just absolute disdain with the person. 
They're actually doing what God said would be done against the second David, that is the son of David, Jesus. But you know, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes got into the mix as well. Now they kind of speak about Jesus from the third person. So they're kind of, it's as if we're overhearing them. And they're making criticisms like, he can save others, why can't he save himself? As if they're justifying their position. Or, or hey, if he, you know, he desires God, if God desires him, let's see if he'll rescue him. Or, or the challenge and say, you know what, I'll believe in him if he comes down off the cross. They too, unwittingly, are walking out what God had said would happen in Psalm 22.8. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So here you have the soldiers, you have those just passing by, you have the chief priests. And now, of course, in the last verse, who do you have last? You have the criminals jumping into it. I mean, the thieves. The text says robbers, but the word actually is more of a rebel, more of an insurrectionist. This is why we probably think they were friends, or at least cohorts, with Barabbas from last week. And they begin deriding him. They begin parroting what the chief priest said. It's amazing how ridicule and mockery is very... It's not very genuine. It tends just to be repeated what's been heard. And they too unwittingly are participating in the walking out of God's plan. Because in Isaiah 53, he says that he'll be numbered with the transgressors. So what do we have here? We have the whole crucifixion scene, starting in 27 all the way to 44. It's all mockery. It's all set in this context of mocking Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's a funny thing about mockery. You see the comprehensiveness of it, don't you? You see the educated, the chief priests and the elders. They're educated. They're the intelligentsia. You know, they're mocking him. And, and you see the criminals. They're the dregs of society. They're mocking Jesus Christ. And the passerbys and the soldiers jump into it as well. You see the intensity of it. I mean, not just the physical. When you read the physical abuse and mockery, it kind of makes you wince in empathetic pain. I mean, you can just feel the blows of a stick coming down on your head. You can, you can imagine the pain that he was under. But, but it, it was, they were, what they were doing was they were mocking his claims. They were mocking who he said he was. They were mocking that he was the Son of Man, that he was the Son of God. They were mocking that he claimed to be the king sent to save. They were mocking the fact that he trusted in God. Uh, they were mocking the fact that God desired him. I think what this is really telling us, you know, when you look at the historical situation, I think it's just reminding us that, that the nature of mockery is really symptomatic of our rebellion against God. Uh, across the board, people rebel against God. They may do it like the Sadducees and these, these intelligent men and women. They may do it in a more sophisticated manner. They may rebel against God and against his claims in a, in a very you know, articulate way where they seem very bright and very balanced, but they're still undermining the claims of God. You see it the same way in the dregs of society. They're kind of caught along and they just flow along with the the tide of anger towards God. I mean, you can find this out. You go to any university community and you just begin to say that I believe that Jesus Christ 
has been sent by God to save sinners. Just try that one out for size at a university and, and see how well mockery and ridicule is just part of the fabric of humanity. I mean, we can look at them. You know, Jonathan Edwards, I think I quoted this last week, but maybe I didn't give context to it. Jonathan Edwards, the one I quoted in the beginning, he said that unconverted men would kill God if they could get at him. And we see that they did. We don't like God. We may be spiritual. We may be aware of higher powers and higher. We don't like to be told to submit to God. We don't want to bend the knee. We don't want to sacrifice ourselves for his purposes and his glory. We want the glory and we want the kingdom in our name for our sake. Just measured by how often do you find yourself talking about yourself more than the person you're with? I've asked you before, when you leave a conversation, who has been talked about most? Usually you or me. We love ourselves. We don't want to submit to God. This is the heart of man. This is why Christ had to come. We, we, we just Look in your marriages. Look in the friendships that you have. In your parenting. Look at your children. You just see a natural... Now listen, rebellion isn't a high fist against God all the time. It can be very benign. It can be something like this. You have two choices before you. To harbor anger, to withhold forgiveness, to pursue lust. You, you, you have the right way and the wrong way. And the wrong way is guaranteeing some temporal pleasure. And What do you follow? You may go the wrong way. Well, that's a form of rebellion. It, it's practiced by us in the community. You don't have to be outside to struggle with rebellion. It's, it's within the heart of men or women. Even the Christian struggles with rebellion. The irony of this whole mockery is that it's in the midst of the mockery that he came to save. The irony is seen in that everything they mocked him over, he in fact was. He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the King of the Jews. He is the King of Israel. He has been sent to save. He did trust in God. God did delight in him. That's the irony. You know, hasn't Matthew been working at this through his whole gospel? If you've been here, Matthew's whole premise here is he's seeking to declare Jesus to be the king. He's done it in the beginning. Remember how we read about how Jesus was born of a woman with flesh like us, so that he could identify with us. But he was also born, over, Mary is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. He was born without human father, pointing to his divinity that he's born without sin, the two natures, fully divine, fully man in Christ. Why? So that he can relate to us, but at the same time, he can be powerful to save to the uttermost. This Jesus has come to declare this kingdom, which he did. He preached the kingdom. He taught about the kingdom, remember, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he began to display the power of the kingdom in his miracles, and he began to invite people into the kingdom by faith and repentance. And then, of course, he's, the whole thing is heading towards Jerusalem. He's beginning to meet some resistance, and he gets to Jerusalem. This is where he should be coronated as king. What do we do? We crucify him. The mockery, the rebellion, gives birth to crucifixion. He should be enthroned, and we entomb him. I mean, it's mind-bending. It should just leave us just shocked. How could we have 
How could we have so far missed it? I mean, Matthew's whole gospel, he's coming, he's coming, the king's coming, the king's coming. Okay, we're going to go kill him. The one sent to save. How could we be so stupid? That's what it just absolutely blind by our own sin that we killed the one sent to save. I mean, can you get a greater irony? The hope is in God alone because God loves to bring redemption out of rebellion. Our rebellion is, it flows, the redemption of God flows out of our rebellion. Let me just take a quick sweep over history. You have Adam and Eve, they rebel against this good God who's given them everything. They want their own law. They want to establish law. That was really the problem. I don't think they had a problem with God per se. I just think they wanted to be like God, and they wanted to establish law like God. They didn't want to be submitted to God. But out of their rebellion, what comes? God looking for them with a promise. The woman will have a seed and will crush the head of the serpent. So out of their rebellion comes redemption. We have in Genesis 6, when the world has gone, just kerflui, and God's going to bring judgment on the rebellion of the world. But what does he bring? He brings Noah to build an ark, a, a type of Christ, if you will, to lift up redemption out of rebellion. Or go to Genesis 11, out of the Tower of Babel. All the races join together. We're going to rebel against God. And God brings and spreads the languages out to, to nullify the rebellion, but he calls Abraham. And he says, through you, the nations will be blessed. Or as I was talking with a friend, the book of Judges. Many of you studied it this past year. It's just a book of rebellion, cycles of rebellion. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And just rebellion after rebellion, and we can't seem to get out of the cycle. But then what follows Judges? Ruth. A beautiful story of what? Redemption. You see it over and over, the goodness of God to bring redemption out of our rebellion. That's what we see in Christ. Out of the mockery and rebellion of our hearts, God has brought forth the Son to save. God loves to save the wicked. God loves to save the sinner. God loves to save the broken, the rebellious. Do you realize that? Are you not thankful for that? That God loves to save you in your rebellion against him? He doesn't wait for you to clean up a little bit. He doesn't wait for you to straighten up life a little bit. Tuck your shirt tail in, so to speak. He doesn't wait for that. He comes to save in Christ. But he saves through a cross. Now, you know, when you, when you look at this passage, I tell you, I hope that makes an impression upon you. I, I hope that while I would appreciate you knowing the details. I often can't remember on Wednesday what I've preached on Sunday. But I hope the impression on your heart right now is that if you have been a rebel, that God has saved you in it. And if you are a rebel and you don't want to bend the knee to God, that you would see he is worthy and still desirous of you coming to him by faith in Christ. But the cross is where it happened. And, and as Luke read the story, you saw how little the cross is given. But I, I just want to speak to it for a minute. So to remove it from some of the, we kind of airbrush it a bit. So you have Jesus. He's been mocked by these guards. He's taken to 
Golgotha, where he's going to die. Now, you know he was weakened by the scourging and by the mocking and everything else that was going on, so they compelled Simon of Cyrene, a town in northern Africa, to carry this, this beam that Jesus would be crucified to. And, uh, and so th- they take him out there. And what's interesting, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, I didn't pick it up reading it through, but it says they dressed him before taking him out there. And so, well, why are they going to dress him? Generally, they would crucify, they would torture, leave him naked, and, and he would walk out, just further mockery. Why did they dress him? Well, they dressed him most likely because they didn't want to offend the sensibilities of the Jewish people that a naked man is walking through the street with a cross. Now, I find that to be almost, I, I find it to be humorous in this respect. It really points to the blindness of who we are, that we're worried about the sensibilities of some nudity here while this colossal atrocity is taking place, putting the Son of Man to death. I mean, I mean, it just seems that we can be so effective at majoring on minors, swallowing the na- or, um, straining out the gnats, and yet we swallow a camel. It's it just, it, you've got to know who you are. And we can so easily be confused like that. So they take him and they march him to Golgotha. It's probably a mild journey, probably wearing a placard that said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Just further mockery, further insult. They get there and they offer him wine with gall to drink. Now, gall makes wine uh, taste very bitter. Now, of course, there's a lot of debate as to why would they do that, you know. And, and Jesus took a sip of it, but he didn't drink anything more. It could actually, gall could make it poisonous. So many think that, well, Jesus had said earlier with his disciples, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you anew in my kingdom. That could be playing a part here. Um, but then why did he take a sip if he wasn't going to drink it? Uh, I think the gall made it bitter and so that when he tasted it, it would be odious, and it was just further mockery. It's just making more fun with our victim here. We're going to kick him one more time when he's down. Just further mockery. So they take him, in, and it says, if you notice, it says when they crucified him. That's all they say. They don't say anything else. Now, why is that? Why so brief? In fact, you can see when they crucified him was set in the context of a sentence, they were dividing his clothes. That was the subject of the sentence, not back there. That was just a, it's a participle. I mean, it wasn't even the main part of the sentence. They kind of glanced right over it. And I think what Matthew's saying is it's not about the pain of crucifixion we're speaking about. It's about this rebellion, even down to his crucifixion, is set in the context of mockery, the rebellion of the human race against the God who has come to save. Well, the crucifixion proper is simply this. They, they would lay a victim out and spread his arms out on the beam, and they would either tie or nail uh, his wrists, hands area to the beam, and then they would lift the beam up on a post that was already in the ground, and they would nail the feet to the vertical piece of the timber. Uh, and then they would just tend to wait. Um, you notice that they don't puncture any major organs, so they want it to be slow and torturous. And generally speaking, the person would have died from blood loss due to scourging or perhaps cardiac arrest or asphyxiation. Because the body would slump, you couldn't get air in the lungs, and so they'd have to lift themselves up. But doing that, you're pulling down on your hands, you're pushing up on your feet, would cause immense pain, and then over time, you'd lose strength and you would suffocate. Uh, Or, generally speaking, what would happen, and it happened here in Luke's Gospel, that the guards would break the legs, and that way you couldn't push yourself up and you couldn't breathe. Now, while this is happening, of course, they're, 
they're casting lots for his clothing. And this was according to Roman rule. Obviously, he's not going to need it anymore. And so the guards who do the execution get to keep the possessions that are on the victim when he is executed. But even here, the guards are unwittingly fulfilling what God had said. These things will happen, so you know he's the one I sent. In Psalm 22, he says, All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garment. That was written 800 years prior. All setting the stage so that when you would see it happen, you'd know who it was. This is the servant that was sent to suffer. He's the man of sorrows for me. That was the point. So you have this story, mockery and execution, all in this context of what our salvation comes from. So what do we do with this? What kind of impression should I be pressing on your heart right now? Well, let, let me just let me list out maybe three or four things that I would ask you to consider that maybe will press upon your heart. So you understand this. Remember now, Matthew is writing to a people that find this repugnant and just absolutely, they're indignant over this feature of, of Christianity. In other words, Matthew's trying to explain, okay, the king I've been telling you about, yeah, this is why he was crucified. I, I mean, it does beg the question, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, you know, Sigmund Freud said that religion was an invention of man to help him cope with life, to help him deal with life. Well, let me ask you, if you were going to invent a religion and, and you really wanted to sell and take off and, and you got a great marketing plan, you wouldn't put chapter 27 in there. You, you'd go right to 28. You'd go right to the resurrection. You wouldn't want to, Matthew's trying to explain this is why what happened because of your rejection? He's trying to explain to us. And so let me just give you a few things to think about. Number one, I think the cross of Jesus Christ is to show us his incredible, his singular devotion to God, his radical obedience to God. And the reason I say that is this. Do you see, and, and when, when Luke was reading, did you hear how Jesus was absolutely passive? Twelve times in the first four verses, Jesus is being acted on. It says, they, took, they gathered the battalion before him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe. They twisted a crown of thorns. They mocked him. They spit on him. They struck him in the head. They mocked him. They put a robe back on him. They led him away to crucify him. He's being acted upon. Now listen, the other two criminals, they can't do anything about it. They're acted upon because they're, they're men. They're fully man. Well, Jesus is fully man. He's fully God. Jesus didn't have to endure it. He could have moved. He could say, I could call down legions right now. God, Jesus Christ, with his glory, could have wiped them all out. He submits himself to the plan of God in perfect obedience to God. Now, why is this important? Well, it's his obedience that assures us that we can be saved. It's his obedience that God looks upon and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, what assures the Christian of being saved is not that you are really, you are incrementally getting better, that you had a good week of reading your Bible and you've thought more Christian thought. You are saved because you're in Christ and God is satisfied with Christ. And this is what we call imputed righteousness. 
where Jesus lives a perfectly righteous life and he gives it to us. So that when God now looks at us, those of us in faith, in Christ, he sees Christ. And so our confidence is resting in his finished work. Listen, he died on the cross for our sins. That's called passive righteousness. He endures the wrath of God over our sins. But that doesn't mean we're worthy to be with God. To have sins removed doesn't make us righteous. It just makes us blank. But he imputes his righteousness to us. So he is, I want you to see, all this endurance of the mockery was so that he would establish us in righteousness. Secondly, the cross shows us of God's commitment to save a people. I mean, think about all the Old Testament references. I just read half a dozen of them. Matthew is writing with the Old Testament in view, showing that God had always determined to save a people through the crucifixion of the Son. The crucifixion, God scripted the whole thing out. It was God's plan completely. But it shows us his commitment to form a people around the Son. That gives me great assurance that God will hold us fast. God will assure us that the ones he saved will in fact be saved. I mean, God has caused this to be. When you think about the cross, the cross is really a Trinitarian act. I mean, it's God bringing forth the Son to be crucified and the work of the Son applied by the Spirit. I mean, we are just spectators at one level. We're just looking at it all, being benefactors from it. God intended this to be. I want you to see this. This wasn't a mad dash to the drawing board. We've got to come up with a different plan to fix things. This is God from the beginning saying, this is the way it's going to go, and the son walked in it. That should cause an assurance for us to know that this, God will complete his work. He'll complete the work he started. The third thing it shows us is that Jesus Christ has come here to bear, the cro- to bear the curse of man. So let me explain this. Cross is a shameful thing. The, the Romans were not allowed to crucify a Roman citizen, only by edict of the Caesar. That was No Roman could be crucified. The Jews saw it as a shameful thing, not just because of the nakedness, but the Jews saw it as a shameful thing because it would indicate that they were under God's curse. So in Deuteronomy 21, it says, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. So if you were to see a man crucified on a tree, that you would know he is bearing the curse of God. Now, walk with me, if you will, back to Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember what happened when the first rebellion took place? God cursed, God brought a curse upon creation, right? He brought a curse upon creation. And the curse separated God from man, that they were to be separate. Man could not re-enter a union, a fellowship, joy with God. So Jesus' coming is bearing that curse so that what? We can be reunited to God. And you know he's bearing the curse, not just because he's hanging on the tree, but there's another way to know he's bearing the curse. What's on his head? Thorns. What was the result of the curse? The ground will produce thorns. Thorns. It's telling us Jesus has come to bring us back to God by becoming the curse for us. This is exactly what Paul wrote in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. He's born the curse. We can now re-enter a relationship with God 
Through Christ and Christ alone. That's why salvation belongs in the name of Christ alone. But there's yet one more thing we see in the cross here. What we see in the cross is that the cross is not the end. I'm so thankful for this. Listen, the cross is really the beginning. You know, when Jesus said in Matthew 20, he predicted all this would happen. So here's what he says in Matthew 20. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus. And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, which they did in chapter 26. They will hand him over the Gentiles, chapter 27, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. You just read that. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. They didn't catch that part. I don't want you to miss that. On the third day, he's raised to life. That There will be a new creation. That's what Matthew 28 is about when we look at that. I'm not going to go there just yet. But in Matthew 28, Jesus is raised from the dead with the body, with the wounds. In other words, he's a picture of what we will be. It's the new creation. God is not finished. God will win. God will be victorious. His kingdom will be his earth, the heavens and the earth will be renewed. They'll be made new and we will live upon them. That's what he's showing. The cross is achieving for us the victory. This is great hope for us. This is not the end. The suffering, the mockery is not the end. So, so that's the instruction of the cross. That, that it shows us the radical obedience of Christ. It shows us the persistent love of God in saving us. It shows us that Jesus has come to bear a curse, and it shows us that this is not the end. Now, here's the challenge to you. If you're a Christian here, the challenge is simply this, that, that following Christ means that you will face mockery. You will face ridicule. Now, you don't necessarily need to be silent like Jesus. Jesus' silent, silence was different. Uh, I would argue that, you know, Paul before Festus and and before um, uh, Felix, Roman governors, uh, he spoke up and preached the gospel. First uh, Peter tells us to always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's within you. But what I want you to see is that, that we will be the minority. Now, in this country, for example, the Christian has not been in the minority for years and years and years and years. But we are now. The Christian is the minority. That, that speaking to the excellencies of Christ in the public square is not well received. Well, let me just remind you, that is not a point of fear. It's not a point of pause. The majority of the church over the majority of the centuries has always been the minority. It's the first time for us, but it's generally the case. And let me remind you, the church has thrived quite well. The church has done very well. It exploded the Mediterranean basin in the first 300 years. It's exploded in China. Supposedly, according to some numbers, it's exploding in Iran. So make no mistake. The minority majority, the majority was always a facade. It was a smokescreen. In some respects, I'm glad it's gone. Because it's going to make very clear, very, very clear, that we're going to face this. This is why we're looking at 1 Peter at the beginning of next year. How does the church live as a minority? So that's the first thing. The second thing I think the Christian is challenged to consider is that this message is not just to delight over, but to declare. I mean, what level of engagement do you have with people over the nature of this Christ? How intentional, how prayerful are you to try to consider how do I move 
a conversation. How do I share this hope with those in my family or those in my community or those at work? Do you concern yourself with the spiritual well-being of those around you? I mean, if this news is true, which I don't think anybody doubts the reality of what I've read, then they need to hear it. I would just, I would just encourage, I would just challenge you with that. How vocal are you to this great Christ, even though it may bring mockery, which we should expect? I would also say that I would challenge the Christian in one other area, and that is that this shows us we live in an upside-down world. The Christian lives in a counterintuitive way. Listen, the way of the kingdom is not military power, you see, in Jesus. He's silent, submitting himself to God. The Christian sees greatness in service. The Christian sees strength in weakness. The Christian sees riches in poverty. Right? It's inverted. It's counterintuitive. So if, you, if you're drawn a certain way by nature, go the other way. Uh, the, the Christian life in the kingdom of God is upside down from what's natural to us. Now, if you're... If you're not a Christian here, I'm thankful that you're here, and I, I pray things have been clear. That's the way we ask God to move. Uh, if you're not a Christian, my question would be, if we were going to invent a religion, why would we include this if it wasn't true? Why would you write it? If you're promoting the acceptance of a religion, why would you do it? It kind of, at least implicitly, leads one to think that it may be true. But, but I would just caution the non-Christian you know, I, I used to say, if you can prove it, I'll believe it. If you can prove it, I'll believe it. And we see here, that doesn't work. So, so if, if you've said to yourself or if you've said to others, if you prove some of these things to me, then I will believe and submit. That does not work. It just patently doesn't. And here's why. Because you see them and you see the chief priests, they say, listen, let him come down from the cross, they say, and we'll believe in him. That's what they said. You read it, I read it, right? Okay, so if I were to just jump ahead in 28, let me share with you what happens in 28. So it says, uh, this is the guards now. Jesus is in the tomb. The guards are guarding it. There was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were like white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. That's what happened following this. So then the guards, in chapter 28, verses 11, it says, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests and everything that had happened. The chief priests had said, If he comes down, I'll believe him. So they go to that same chief priest, and when the chief priests had met, and oh, excuse me, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Earthquake, big guy, glowing kind of thing, we're all shaken, we're dead men. And they reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money. You're to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So, are they liars? Absolutely. But the reality of it is, miracles don't convince a person to believe. It has to be the Spirit of God that moves upon the person. That's what we pray for. And that's what I pray for you. If you're a non-Christian here, miracles cannot change you. They can impress you. They can maybe stick in your memory for a while. They can maybe open your eyes to some things. But it has to be that submission to God by the Spirit of God 
for the glory of God. So let's take a minute right now and, and consider these things. And I would ask you just in silence, just maybe uh, if you feel convicted um, by your lack of appreciation or thankfulness or you've grown familiar with this text and maybe confess that. Take this time to confess your sins before God. Take time to think about where you are with Christ. Do you believe? Do you need to repent and follow him? And then an elder will close us in just a moment. Thank you.